Well, good morning, church. You're going to grab your Bibles with me and please turn to the book of Genesis. We're looking at uh, chapter 33 this morning. And if you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that is in front of you, that should be found on page 27. I'll give you a second to turn there with me. If you don't own a Bible uh, that you can read at at your home, uh, we want to remind you that those Bibles that are in the chair in front of you, take them home. Uh, No one will tackle you on the way out for stealing it. We want you to have the Bible in your hands. Take it home, keep it, read it. Um, Bring any questions you have about what you're reading to us. We'd love to talk with you more about it and what it means to, to know God as he reveals himself in his word. Everyone there? Wow. Y'all there? All right. All right, we've been walking along with Jacob uh, for several chapters through Genesis, and we've we've noted that that for a long time, Jacob was a con artist trickster who got through life on his own strength and his own plan. But a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 32, God confronts the trickster. He confronts the self-reliant Jacob in the night. And he confronts him not to bludgeon him, but to bless Jacob. And so after this wrestling match with God in chapter 32 that lasted into the morning, Jacob emerges in the morning with a broken hip that left him weak in himself, but strong in the Lord. God also gave Jacob a new name. No longer will you be called Jacob, the trickster. I'm going to make you into a new man. I'm going to call you Israel, the man who strove not against God, but with God. So when we get to chapter 33, after seeing this wrestling match and seeing God, God and him, him see God face to face and him with a new name after chapter 32, when we get to chapter 33, we expect Jacob to start acting like Israel and no longer living like Jacob. But to burst your bubble, what we find in chapter 33 is a mixed bag. Yes, he's a new man. That's real. He is Israel. But the old Jacob still shows up in chapter 33. No one wakes up one day saying, you know what? I think I want to ruin my life today. Satan does not come to us with a name tag announcing, hello, I just want to give you a heads up that I'm here to ruin your life in one fell swoop. No, he comes to us in disguise. And he gets us off track, not in one fell swoop, but little by little. Small compromises that in the moment don't seem like that big of a deal. But left unchecked, we wake up one day only to realize my life is ruined. If we, before we look at chapter 33, if we peek ahead at chapter 34, what we'll find is that Jacob's daughter was raped by the prince of Shechem. In retaliation, his sons will offer a, a peace treaty with the town, but like their dad used to be, it was a trick. And they end up murdering the entire town which leaves Jacob at the end of chapter 34 wondering if his family and their future was ruined. If they'd lose everything. So how did Jacob end up in chapter 34 where he was? Little by little, small compromises, partial obedience, left unchecked. Imagine the people of God reading Genesis for the first time as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after their grumbling and disobedience to God. As they made their way, chapter 33 would be both an encouragement and it would also be a warning to them to keep on the path that leads to the promised land. Fast forward from their day to our day. Jesus taught us the same thing. He said there's two ways to live. There's two paths. He says the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. 
Sometimes we're on that narrow road, that hard way that leads to life, and we're like, I just, I'm tired. I want a shortcut. So if we're to make it home to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth, if we're to make it all the way from where we're at now, all the way to heaven, we need the same encouragement and warning that the people of God received in Genesis 33. And that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. First of all, the encouragement of God's grace. Point number one, the encouragement of God's grace. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 11 of our text. So if you will, look with me at God's word in chapter 33, verse 1. Moses writes, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So... He divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, And fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, no, please. If if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Now, remember that at the end of chapter 32, this wrestling match between God and Jacob, Jacob had seen the face of God and he lived to tell about it came out alive on the other side. So that is to say, at the very least, that was a significant spiritual moment that Jacob would never forget. You might say it was a spiritual high. But it was not meant to be an escape from reality. Because guess what happens the next morning? He still got to meet Esau. Great spiritual high, saw God face to face, and I lived to tell about it. But guess what happens the next morning? Still got to see Esau. Friends, in reading Genesis, we need to remember that we are being shown highlights of these biblical characters. Important, decisive moments in the lives of these biblical characters. What we don't always see are the days and weeks and years of the mundane activities The routines. We know that that Jacob watched Laban's flock for 20 years, but we aren't given kind of a play-by-play of the mundane routine. He woke up at 6 a.m., he watched the sheep, and this is what happened on day two. No, we're not given those details. We're given the highlights. So we we don't always see the mundane activities in Scripture of working a job or changing diapers or paying the bills. We just see the highlights. And friends, We need to remember for us, too, whether it was a powerful week that we had at church camp, amazing spiritual high, whether it was a special church service that just seemed to stick out in our memory, or whether it was a a life-changing sermon, thank God for extraordinary spiritual moments in our lives that God uses to change us, kind of like chapter 32 for Jacob. Thank God for those moments. But we must not see those high spiritual moments as an escape from reality. This past week, I was listening to our brother Des Oots encourage another member of our church, and his encouragement was, brother, 
He was just saying to this guy, I'm so encouraged by how you work your job hard. You wake up each day, you don't complain, you come home and care for your family day in and day out, and I'm thankful for God, what I see in, in God, in you do, in God doing in your life. And I remember just thinking, yeah, that's, that was really significant. And you'll, you won't see on tomorrow's headlines in the news, man works job faithfully. You, you won't see a, a trophy for a mom who stays up late with a child during the night again. <laughs> but much of life is like that. Much of life is routine, mundane, plodding along. Next thing, next thing. Things that are a matter of faithfulness that nobody sees. There's no headlines, there's no trophies, there's no rewards from man, but things that God sees. So church, this is not the point of the, this text here, but it's an encouragement for us to press on in the mundane things of life, in the routines of faithfulness that God sees and cares deeply about. Pray that we as a church are faithful, not just in the big things and the high spiritual moments, but pray that we as a church are faithful in the small things, in the mundane things, in the routine things of life. Because as Jesus taught us in Luke 16, 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Well, anyways, Jacob was about to meet Esau. And before he meets him, we gotta remember that the last time that Jacob saw Esau was 20 years ago. And the last time he saw his brother Esau, Esau was literally making plans to murder his brother because Jacob had wronged him and cheated him and tricked him over and over. He'd stolen his birthright. He'd stolen his, he'd taken his birthright and he'd stolen his blessing and he was ticked. In fact, he was so angry and so set on murdering his brother that Jacob had to flee and spend 20 years with Laban. Now he's left Laban, he's coming back to the promised land, and verse one begins with him seeing Esau coming and 400 men with him. And we noted a couple weeks ago that that 400 men feels like an army. So it's not surprising that he is a little nervous about this meeting. He doesn't know what's gonna happen. And so he kind of prepares for the worst and he divides his family into three groups. First group was Zilpah and Bilhah, his servant wives with their kids. And second group was Leah, her kids. And the third group was Rachel and Joseph. I think the idea is that if, if Esau does in fact start killing people, well, at least the, the next group and the next group behind has time to get away and perhaps save their lives. So it sounds like a practical plan, right? Sounds like a pretty good plan if you're Rachel and Joseph. Imagine you're, you're not Rachel and Joseph. Imagine you're Bilhah or Zilpah. Imagine you're Leah. It would have been heartbreaking to see the favoritism that Jacob is showing with his family. They would have known who's in the pecking order by this grouping that Jacob sets out. And friends, if we just stay tuned and keep reading on in Genesis, we're going to see how this favoritism that Jacob has towards Joseph and towards Rachel produces bitter rivalry, produces envy in his family that has disastrous results. We're going to see it front and center with Joseph in chapter 37 with the coat of many colors and what happens to him. Partiality is not how we're meant to treat each other, whether it's in the family or whether it's with other ethnicities. We are all the people of God. Well, his favoritism is awful, but I think we can say to his credit, this is kind of a mixed bag we're seeing, Jacob doesn't stand in the back of the family line saying, hey guys, let me know how it, go with, let me know how it goes with Esau. I think the former Jacob would have done that, but I think in verse three, what we should note to his credit is that he, as a changed man, he actually gets out in front of the entire group. He takes the lead. He goes before his family as a, as a husband and a father should. That way, if Esau does kill anyone, Jacob's the first one to go. So mixed bag we're seeing here. Anyways, Jacob comes and he meets Esau. He sees Esau with his 400 men coming. He doesn't know how this is gonna go. And the first thing he does is he bows down before his, his, his brother Esau, nose in the dust seven times, hoping that Esau does not murder him. 
So with that in mind, verse 4 and 5 is surprising, and it's unexpected. Because when we, when we see Esau's, we see Jacob's response versus Esau's response, they're, they're drastically different. This is no begrudging acceptance. This is no reluctant forgiveness. This is not, I'm hanging our past over your head forgiveness. This is a joyful reconciliation between brothers that were once at odds with each other. In fact, this reconciliation is so remarkable that it seems that Jesus had this very scene in mind in the parable of the prodigal son. When he, when he describes how God himself, as the heavenly father, responds to a prodigal son or daughter who repents and comes home. In Luke 15, verse 20, he says, While he, the prodigal son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's what Jesus says. Now compare that with verse 4. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. This was a remarkable, unexpected, gracious reconciliation between brothers. This was an emotional reunion with both of them weeping. It's not just Esau weeping, it's also Jacob weeping. And I think the fact that both of them are weeping is a reminder, is is evidence of the relief that Jacob is feeling in this moment. He's been carrying around a burden of guilt for 20 years. And when this is how his brother responds to him, He's so overwhelmed with gratitude and with joy that he weeps with his brother. I think at this moment, Jacob begins to see something that he was previously blind to in his preparations for this meeting. In other words, when Esau asks Jacob, who are these people? Jacob answers in verse 5. Look at what he says in verse 5. These are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. He is seeing God's grace that he was previously blind to in his plan making. Remember, when he left the promised land for the first time, when Esau was ready to kill him, he left the promised land on the run for his life. All he had was a staff in his hand, nothing. No money, no family, nothing. 20 years later, he comes back blessed by God with huge flocks with a, and with a family. He didn't deserve this family. He recognizes in this moment, this family is a gift from God. He could have died. God's kept him, not only kept him alive, but blessed him with a family. God has graciously given me this family, he says. Friends, I wonder if this is how you view your own family. Parents, I wonder if this is how you view your kids this morning, even when parenting is really hard. Psalm 127, verse 3, we read it this morning, says, Children are a gift of the Lord. Or I wonder if this is how you see your spouse, even when a marriage can be really difficult. Proverbs 12, verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Friends, rather than grumble or complain about our kids or our spouse, how can you express gratitude both to the Lord and to do that in front of your spouse and to your kids today as evidence that your family is a gracious gift of God? Or even towards your parents. Well, after meeting Jacob's family, Esau, he says, well, who are these people? This is, this is the family that God has graciously given me. After meeting the family, Esau then turns his attention to the droves of animals that, that Jacob had sent before their meeting. So before the family comes, remember, there's drove after drove after drove of all these animals that, that Jacob had sent as a gift. And so in verse 8, he asks Jacob, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And I think the company that he has there in mind is the animals. Right? Jacob's answer is to find favor in the sight of my Lord. That's a pretty honest answer. 
In other words, Jacob's saying to Esau, listen, I sent these animals because I didn't want you to be mad at me. I sent these animals because I wanted you to like me. I sent these animals because I wanted you to be nice to me. I sent these animals because I wanted to buy your favor. And again, Esau's response to him in verse 9 surprises us. Esau says to him, I have enough, my brother. Notice that affectionate term, my brother. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have yourself. And again, I think the light bulbs are turning on in Jacob's mind. He's beginning to see God's grace, which he was previously blind to. So Jacob responds in verse 10. No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. Now, before it was a bribe to buy the favor of his brother. And all of a sudden in verse 10, it shifts from being a bribe to a present. A gift with no strings attached. I don't need to buy your favor anymore. I, I realize I have your favor because of God's grace. So I don't want to. I want to give. I don't want to give you these animals as a bribe anymore to earn your favor. I give you these animal. These animals as a gift, no strings attached. Why a present? Verse ten. He answers it. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. So he, he's connecting what is happening in thirty three with what happened in 32. Because in chapter 32, he wrestled with God, he saw God face to face and lived, and he named that place Peniel, which means the face of God. He saw God's face and he lived. It was God's way of reassuring Jacob beforehand, listen, if I let you see my face and live, then you can be sure that I will oversee your meeting with Esau tomorrow and you will see his face and you'll live. I got you. I promise to protect you. I promise to be with you. I promise to keep you. Don't worry. And Jacob, don't forget, in chapter 32, verse 11, had prayed specifically, deliver me. Deliver me from my brother who hates me. Deliver me from my brother who wants to kill me. And guess what? God heard and answered his prayer. In this moment, Jacob is realizing that the reason that Esau went from hating him and wanting to kill him to accepting him and embracing him as a brother had nothing to do with the droves of animals. It had everything to do with the grace of God. How do we know that? Look at verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. I don't know this for sure, but he, he doesn't mention the blessing up front when he doesn't know how things are going to go. I almost wonder if he doesn't mention blessing up front because he had stolen his blessing. But when he knows that we're okay, he, he, then, it, he then acknowledges, yeah, I, I do have the blessing. God had ordained me to have this blessing, and I want to share it with you. Whatever the case, as you watch Jacob in Genesis, one of the things that I don't like about Jacob and I appreciate about Jacob is that I often see myself in Jacob. Jacob's a mess. He loves God, he trusts God, he obeys God, kinda. He's a new man, but the old man kind of shows up once in a while. Jacob serves as a reminder. The focus of this text is not on Jacob, but it's on God. Jacob serves as a reminder that God's plan is not dependent upon our performance but upon his grace. God's plan is dependent upon the faithfulness of God to do what he promises. And Jacob is kind of getting it, but he still needs to keep learning it. Now, we may not have a brother who wants to kill us. I hope not. But we naturally seek the approval or the acceptance of others all the time. So, I want us to notice the order of events before chapter 33, chapter 32. Before Jacob gets right with Esau in chapter 33, he needed to get right with God in chapter 32. This is the pattern we see all through scripture. This is what we read about in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, we're first reconciled with God, and then as a result of that, we're reconciled with each other. 
Same thing we see in Genesis 33. I think part of the reason, the importance for this order is that, you know, as an illustration, you may hate your wallpaper in your house. You may think that the wallpaper in your house is a big problem, and you want to change the wallpaper in your living room. But if your house is on fire, changing the wallpaper is no longer your biggest problem, right? That God came to Jacob before he was reconciled with Esau reminds us that getting right with God should be and is our chief concern. I pray that it's your chief concern. And if you are reconciled with God, I pray that you see it as the most important thing in your life already taken care of. So how can a sinner like you or a sinner like me, how can we be reconciled, first of all, to a holy God? How can we go from being an enemy of God having him opposed us to being a friend of God? How can we go from being alienated from God to actually being a a child of God? Well, I think one of the things we're meant to see is that in, in calling Jacob, who is a descendant of Abraham, God was raising up a Messiah. God was raising up a Savior who would make reconciliation with God possible. In time, That Savior, who is Jesus, would come from the family line of Jacob 2,000 years ago from our time frame. Jesus lived a life without sin that we have failed to live. And so Jesus, when when he died on the cross, he died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. So your sin and my sin offends God. Our sin angers a holy God. But on the cross, Jesus bears the punishment and the righteous wrath of God for my sin and your sin, for the sin of anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ so that you and I can be reconciled with a holy God. Paul makes this explicit in Romans 5 verse 10 when he says that if While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So friends, my non-Christian friends, so glad you're here this morning. Pray that you keep coming back and wrestling with these truths. I want you to know this morning, though, that Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross so that you and I could be accepted by God. Christ died for our sin and he rose again on the third day so that he now calls you and I to turn from our sin, to turn from our self-reliance and to trust solely in Jesus. That's how we're reconciled with God. So if you're not yet a Christian, I plead with you to do that. I pray that you today would mark it today, make up your mind to trust in Christ and him alone. If you have questions about how to do that, come talk to me or one of the pastors or the person that you're here with. We'd love to talk with you more about how you can be reconciled to God because that is our chief concern. Church, when we see these men, these two brothers going from enemies to reconciled brothers, embracing each other, weeping in joy and gratitude with each other, we may look on that reconciliation between brothers longingly because we know that in our lives there is a broken relationship that we long to be reconciled. It might be a broken friendship. It might be an estranged child. It might be a ruined marriage. But whatever the pain is, we might be sitting here looking at these brothers reconcile after 20 years and we may be wondering if reconciliation is possible in the broken relationships that we're dealing with in our lives. And I just wanna say not every every broken relationship in a fallen world ends up the same way as Jacob and Esau are reconciled. And sometimes when reconciliation does happen, it takes a long time. Not just a week or a month or a year. It might take years 
Don't forget that it was 20 years before Jacob and Esau were reconciled. But I think the point for us to notice in chapter 33 is that God's grace is the hope of reconciliation. God's grace is the ground, it is the hope, it is the basis of reconciliation. Not your clever plan, not the five-step thing that you read in the internet this last week, not the gifts that you can give to bribe, but God's grace. There might be some wise, important things that we can and should do to bring about reconciliation, but at the, at the end of the day, the heart change that is necessary for reconciliation lies within the power of God and the grace of God. God's grace is the hope of reconciliation and God's grace is the fuel that sustains us while we wait for and work towards that reconciliation. But sometimes that hope of reconciliation fades and we feel like we're losing hope. Why does that hope seem to fade sometimes? I think this text has something to offer us as far as an encouragement. Because, friends, when the fear of failure creeps into our lives, when the fear of being hurt again creeps into our lives, when the fear of death or the fear of something comes into our life in some crisis, fear can leave us so focused on the problem, so myopically focused on the problem, that we don't see anything else. It blinds us to the providence of God, how God is sovereign, how God's in control. It it, it blinds us to the promises of God that are right there in front of us. Remember, look look at verse 1 again. It says, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. There's this theme of looking and seeing all throughout chapter 33. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And what did he see? He saw Esau. He saw Esau with 400 men coming to kill him. But he didn't see the providence of God. He wasn't looking at Esau through the lens of God's promises. He wasn't looking at what was coming at him as a problem with the promise and the presence of God being right there with him. He couldn't see it. It was true God, you know, Esau was coming, but he became blind to God and his promise to be with him and to keep him and to bring him back to the promised land as he promised in Genesis 28. And so he freaks out, panics, and makes his own plans again. And yet God is patient with Jacob. And God is merciful with Jacob. And he's persistent with Jacob. And God keeps pressing and pressing and pressing on Jacob until he learns to trust God's providence. What's God's providence? It is God's sovereignty for your good. It's him being in control of every situation for your good. And so after Esau's surprising embrace in verse 4, the text doesn't tell us this, but I imagine Jacob just shaking his head, smiling, in gratitude. Wow. Why was I making all these plans? Why was I panicking? God was faithful to do exactly what he had promised the whole time. Friends, God's grace is our hope. And as we seek the Lord in scripture, as we pray and ask big things of God, as we as his people rely on God, and not on our understanding of the situation, and not on ourselves, or our own abilities, or our own schemes, but we rely on God and his providence, the encouragement of God's grace becomes like a billboard. We're on this journey to the promised land, to the celestial city, to the new heavens and the new earth, and the encouragement of God's grace is like this big neon billboard that keeps the pilgrim on the path to heaven. We need that encouragement. We need the encouragement of God's grace. So, praise God for his amazing grace. We read about it in Ephesians 2. We see it in uh, Genesis 33. We sang about it in the songs this morning. We should praise God for the encouragement of God's amazing grace. And when and we see God's grace in a messy life like Jacob's, and, and we see God's grace with Jacob's imperfect faith, it is an encouragement. 
Because it's not based upon our performance, but God's faithfulness and his grace. But, does God's grace mean that we can then treat our sin like it's not that big of a deal? Does God's grace mean that we can rely on phrases and sayings and mottos like, well, you know, no one's perfect. And we take that saying like a comfort blanket as if God doesn't care much about our sin. No, (laughs) we can't presume upon God's grace that way. And that's the, the warning that we see in the second part of our text. Point number two. So we've seen the encouragement of God's grace. Point number two is this, the warning of partial obedience. The warning of partial obedience. And this is verses 12 through 20. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. So let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he, Jacob, said, ah, what need is there? (laughs) Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means this is God is Elohim is the God of Israel of Jacob. Now, to understand this last part of chapter thirty-three, it helps to keep the geography of in, of this text in mind here, because we're not really familiar with these places. So. Uh, in this meeting between Esau and Jacob, we need to remember that Seir is in the south. If you go directly south from where they're at, uh, it leads to the country of Edom. And Seir is where uh, Esau lives in Edom. So it's outside the promised land, outside of the land of Canaan, and, and it's south of where they're at. Uh, in contrast, Succoth and Shechem are northwest of where they are. Succoth is just outside of the promised land at the border of the Jabbok River. And then Shechem is in the promised land of Canaan. So one's to the south and the other two cities are to the northwest. So keep that in mind. All right. So after this amazing kind of surprising reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, Esau's like, man, this is awesome. Let's just, let's just live together. Let's, like, let's pack up and let's go. Come home with me to Seir. And Jacob just politely declines, and he says, you know, brother, I, I just slow you down. I've got young kids. I've got nursing flocks. I don't want to slow you down. I don't want to be a bother to you. So why don't you just go ahead of me, and then I'll come and meet you later in Seir. But Jake Esau is persistent. He, he makes a second proposal. He says, okay, well, I won't go with you, but at least let me send some of my men with you to protect you on the way. So uh, one thing to just note here is that the, the 400 men that Jacob was afraid was an army come to kill him, apparently Esau had 400 men to protect him. So it's just a good reminder for us not to always assume the worst in people, but where it's appropriate to assume the best in others. Again, Jacob declines. No need, brother. I don't want to inconvenience you. I'll just catch up with you in Seir. And after this persistent kind of conversation, Esau goes uh, south to his home in Seir, which is in Edom. And once he leaves, I imagine, he's out of the sight of Jacob. (laughs) Jacob gathers up his family. And so Esau's going this direction south. Jacob sees them out of sight. He's like, okay, guys, gathers everybody together. And he goes the opposite direction. 
So Esau is going south to Seir. Jacob gathers up his family, and he goes northwest to Succoth, which means Booth. So he has a, he has a temporary kind of a place of, of, of lodging in, in Succoth, and then he eventually crosses that river, goes into the promised land in Shechem. Uh, but the point is they're, they're in opposite directions. Now, in our day, we're, we're familiar with kind of exaggerated um, uh, cultural customs of uh, hospitality and kindness. So, you know, it, it's like you might go to lunch today at the Olive Garden and you might end up kind of fighting over uh, the person that you went to lunch with, you know, I, when the bill comes. And you're like, I, I got the bill. And your friend might say, no, 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 I've got the bill. You paid last time, and you kind of go back and forth. You're, you're, it almost looks like you're coming to, to fight, but it's almost like this exaggerated kindness that you're showing to each other. You just you want to you pay the bill. So we're kind of used to cultural expressions of, of exaggerated hospitality and kindness like that. And I think I note that because one of the challenges in interpreting a text like Genesis 33 is whether it's in the negotiations that we saw in the first part or whether it's in this conversation at the end of Esau and Jacob, whether that should, whether that should go together. One of the challenges is, is knowing, okay, what is, what is just a cultural expression of exaggerated kindness and hospitality? Is this just the way that they bartered in their culture? And what is a lie? What's, what's, what's a cultural expression of kindness and what is a scheme? And it's not always clear in the text. Uh, and where Moses wants something to be clear, he'll make it clear. And where, where we're kind of going off a rabbit trail from the text, he, he often doesn't answer our questions. So um, did Jacob intend to go to Seir? But, you know, life got busy and never made it. Uh, did, he, did he say, when he said, I'll, I'll meet you in Seir, did he just mean like, listen, I'm going to go north, kind of get our situ- place situated, and then in a couple months he ended up making his way down south to Seir to visit his brother, even though the text doesn't say that? Or was he just scheming and lying? Was the old Jacob showing up again? Again, the, the text doesn't explicitly tell us the motivation of Jacob. It seems to me that Jacob is lying, but I think we need to be careful about speculating. Because where Moses does not tell us Jacob's inner motivations, we need to be careful not to speculate, but rather to stay with the line of the text, stay on the line of the text where Moses is taking us, because that will help us rightly interpret what he's wanting us to see. So whether it's a polite Jacob or whether it's a dishonest Jacob, I think in the end, his decision not to go south to Seir is the right decision. He might have made a right decision but gone about it the wrong way. But it's the right decision because God had called him to go back to the promised land, back to the land of Canaan. Seir is in Edom. It's not in the promised land. So he was not supposed to go. He was right to not go with his brother. Whether, so whether, maybe he was just being polite. Maybe he's being dishonest. Maybe he just sort of spoke the truth in love and said, brother, can't go with you. I got to go to the promised land. God told me to go there. Not sure. But he's right not to go, to the prom- he's, he's right not to go with his brother to Seir. Either way, Moses wants us to see that they're going opposite directions. And he stops short, he stops in Succoth for a bit, and then he goes further into the prom- he goes into the promised land and lands in Shechem, which verse 18 says was in the promised land. It was in the land of Canaan. So, so far, so good, right? God tells Jacob, go back to the promised land. Where's he at? He's in the promised land. So far, so good. Problem is, is that God told him, God told Jacob to go back to Bethel. Bethel is a day's journey south of Shechem. You might read the text and say, well, Zach, listen. Maybe Shechem was just another pit stop, and and he's actually on his way to Bethel. No. Verse 19 says that he bought a piece of land there for 100 pieces of money. Jacob is moving in. He's planting his flag. He's there to stay in Shechem. So he's in the right country. He's within the right kind of zip code, the right, the right border of the country. And, 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 and maybe he's tired and maybe he just likes Shechem, but whatever's going on, he looks around and assumes, oh, this is close enough. I'm in the promised land. Bethel, Shechem, does it really matter? I mean, he did build an altar. 
He went to church. And no one's perfect, right? God is gracious. So he'll be okay with them just stopping at Shechem, right? No one's perfect. Friends, like Jacob, we are often tempted to settle for partial obedience. And we need to remember that partial obedience is disobedience. We might say, I love Jesus. I'm not ashamed of him. Unless my friends thinks it's ridiculous. I obey my parents when they're looking. We may not murder, but we excuse our sinful anger. I'm not having an adulterous affair, but we tolerate lust or flirtation with somebody not our spouse. We don't tell a lie, but we excuse a half-truth. We're kind to somebody's face, but then we gossip behind their back. Friends, God is gracious. Praise God. That's our hope. But God's grace does not mean that we escape the consequences of our sinful decisions. Sin can be forgiven, but we, have, we still have the consequences of that sin that we have to live with. And, and so there's a warning in this text for us. Uh, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes this. He says, Shechem offered Jacob the attractions of a compromise. His summons from God was to go to Bethel. But Shechem, a day's journey short of it, stood attractively at the crossroads of trade. Chapter 34 will then eventually show the cost of Jacob settling at Shechem. The cost, in other words, of partial obedience. Rape, treachery, and massacre. A chain of evil that proceeded logically from the unequal partnership with the Canaanite community in Shechem, the place that God did not call him to stop at. So friends, listen, we need the encouragement of God's grace but we also need the warning about the dangers of partial obedience. We need both billboards. As we walk on this path to the celestial city, we need the billboard, which is the encouragement of God's grace, stay on the path, and we need the warning about the dangers of partial obedience to stay on this path. If you are a Christian, you are a pilgrim, This is not your home. You are a pilgrim making your way to the celestial city. You are a pilgrim making your way to the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus will come back and make all things new. We're not there yet. That's why we're pilgrims. So as we make our way and we're, we're tended to these shortcuts, who will hold up these billboards for you? Who will hold up the billboards for me? Who will hold up these billboards of encouragement of God's grace and the warnings of partial obedience? Who will hold up these warnings for us? Who will hold up these encouragements for us? The person sitting to your left and the person sitting to your right. It's the church. It's what it means to be a member of a church. When you join a church, you're covenanting with that church to encourage each other with God's grace and to warn each other when we begin to drift. Both of those are expressions of love. Hebrews 3.12-13 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, encourage and warn, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How often do we need the encouragement of, or the exhortation, the encouragement or the warning of a brother or sister in Christ? As long as it's called today. What is Today. Today, do you need it? Yep, what's tomorrow? When tomorrow becomes today, you need the encouragement and the warning of a brother and sister in Christ. God uses his church as a means of grace to keep us on this path using the warning of the dangers of partial obedience and the encouragement of God's grace. Picture Jacob. 
hip, just out of socket, put back in, kind of limping along into the promised land. Jacob, I don't think, ran. I think he limped. That's an encouragement church. Because the church is not filled with spiritual superstars who always get it right the first time. The church is filled with Jacobs who limp along to the promised land. I'm Jacob, and so are you. But we shoulder up together as a church, and we limp along together, and by God's grace, he brings us together limping into the promised land, the land of the new heavens and the new earth, where there's no more weeping or sorrow or sickness or pain or death anymore. Together, our limping and our weakness becomes the display for God, a, a platform for God to display his strength. This is never about Jacob and his performance. It's never about us and our performance. It's always been about the grace of God and the glory of God in that grace. Why did God choose you, church? To the glory of his grace. Notice in verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, does Jacob have further to go? Yep. When we get to chapter 35, God's going to say, get up and go to Bethel, like I told you the first time. So he's got some more, he's got ways to go. But note, he is here in the land of Canaan, safely, as God promised. God was faithful to get him this far, and God will be faithful to get him all the way home. And Christian, the same is true for you and me. God will get us all the way home. By his grace, through the power of his spirit, there is people. Let's pray.